History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge, find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello, my name is Ryan Weir, and I'm here in the HHE studio with the mash to my potato. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. I'm the, I thought the potato was mash. Now you're confusing me. Well, it's the style, isn't it? So it's how you do your potato. Oh, I see. I'm just the actual potato, and you're the mash. <laughs> <laughs> So, Peter, last time the Dursalator rolled in your favour. True or false? (laughs) Did it, though? (laughs) (laughs) And it gave you face the music in Bhutan during 400 to 500 CE. So how was that for you, Pete? I thought it was going to be super, super easy, and it was not super, super easy for reasons that will become clear, but the nation is fascinating. We are off to the Himalayas, mysterious, mountainous and majestic. We're going to hear the music of nature and the music of man as it echoes around the tree-lined valleys. And we're going to meet a legendary Buddhist whose lifestyle I'm pretty sure is going to surprise you. And finally, we'll dabble in the national sport of this episode's country, the fascinating nation of Bhutan. Alright, well that sounds amazing, Pete, and I am intrigued to know more because I know very little about Bhutan. So why don't you start at the very, very basics and tell us some fascinating facts about the background to Bhutan. I will do, sir. Uh, There is very good reason why you don't know much about it, though, so you will be vindicated by the end of this episode. It is the Kingdom of Bhutan. It's also known as Druk Yul, or the Land of the Thunder Dragon. Now that is an awesome name. How'd you like that, right? Yeah, the Thunder Dragon. Thunder Dragon. It is located in the eastern Himalayas, it's sandwiched between Tibet to the north and India to the south, which politically puts it between India and China. So mm. it's this little country kind of going, <laughs> be very, very careful what we say and do. It amazes me that those little countries can survive against the might of such big places. Well, again, you're going to find out some reasons for that. It's uh, relatively isolated. It's in the Himalayas. It's mm. a Himalayan country. And that's enabled them to survive perhaps when other more accessible countries may have been overrun by their much larger neighbours. Uh, similarly, Nepal is quite nearby it doesn't actually border but it's a similar Himalayan small nation sandwich between big monstrosities it's mountainous it will not surprise you to learn being in the Himalayas but it's not all high snowy peaks in the south there's a lot of dense forest lush subtropical environments there's a temperate midlands which is kind of where the people live but again very forested area and but it does also have alpine highlands which is basically mountains as you and I think of them yeah I mean I really have no image in my mind beyond maybe a monastery at the top of a mountain and that is typical imagining so yeah. uh, I'm going to slightly reinforce that and also try and uh, clarify as well because what you're probably thinking of is as much Tibet as it is Bhutan which yep, is probably. much more higher in Alpine okay uh, it covers 39,000 square kilometres 15,000 square miles that doesn't sound much it's not much you need 14 Bhutans to make yourself a France ah okay 7% the size the population is just 730,000 people 730,000 people okay all living up mountains that amazing is, exactly that's approximately the size of the population of Seattle in the USA. Okay. Most of them are Buddhist, specifically a Vajrayana Buddhist, which is a subsect of Buddhism. And Buddhism is the state religion, and it's played a massive part in shaping the history of this country, which we will learn about shortly. The flag is quite unusual. You know, normally in a flag you have very bold colours and very contrasting colours. Yeah. The flag of Bhutan is sort of diagonally divided, top right to bottom left, and one half of it is a yellow colour, and the other half is orange. It's two very subtle, quite complementary shades. And then following with the join of the colours diagonally is a, a drawing a black and white line drawing of a druk a dragon you know the chinese dragons which are much more serpentiny in the body and little whiskers in the mouth okay a druk you did you say a druk i've never heard that word before that is uh, the bhutanese word for a dragon oh i see okay and this is a word you will hear a lot more of because the word druk comes up in a lot of bhutanese things i want to change my name to thunder druk well <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you, I, I encourage you to do so. Um, the dragon's holding jewels in his claws, representing the wealth of Bhutan. The yellow and the orange color represent the orange is the religious authority and the yellow is the worldly authority. And the dragon straddles the two to show the unity of religious and temporal authority. Symbology. Exactly. That's right. Our flag fact. Flag facts. There are three nations in the world with a dragon on their flag. Okay. Bhutan is one. Wales is another one. Wales is another one. Uh, <laughs> Third one's really tricky. It wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't leap to mind, I assure you. Oh, this is a good one, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying, scanning through my little Rolodex of flags in my mind, and I'm coming up blank. It's a real trick question, because okay. it's actually Malta. And what? What you have is the flag of Malta, only in the top left in the canton, has a tiny shield. And in that tiny oh, shield, there's stop. an image of St. George killing the dragon. <laughs> that does not count. No, it's, it very much doesn't count. It's certainly nothing like the magnificent dragons of Bhutan and Wales. Hmm. But this flag is, when you look at it, you kind of think, wow, that really stands out to me as being quite different to the usual way in which flags are done. And to go to national flag to national song, again, they've kind of gone their own way. You know, we've previously commentated how national anthems all have a similar genre, that kind of mm. marching brass band Marshall. sound. Well, this is quite different. Uh, this is the national anthem of Bhutan. Ooh. I think I put your spa music on. It's rather different genre, isn't it? This is uh, totally contrary to all other national anthems we've listened to. I mean, no one's going march into this. No, it's not going to take you into battle very effectively. You'd be too chilled out. Yeah. It's like the beginning of a Cirque du Soleil show. <laughs> It's beautiful though, isn't it? How it. unexpected was that when I first played this? I was just delighted. Whoa. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> isn't that great? This is called Druk Tsenden. Right. Dragon the word Druk again. Yeah. Lyrics are by Dolop Drup Namge. And the music was composed by Aku Tongmi. It was adopted in 1953 as the national anthem. 1953? Yeah, you'll find a lot of the institutes of state that we all kind of take for granted are reasonably recent in the history of Bhutan. I'm loving Bhutan so far. New fact. It is home to the highest unclimbed mountain in the world. The highest unclimbed mountain? Unclimbed mountain. Oh, the... come on. There must be tons of people wanting to climb it. Well, there probably are. It's called Gankar Puenshum. Uh, its name means White Peak of the Three Spiritual Brothers. Right. So why hasn't it been climbed? Well, for a long time, the area was... was really visited it's been it's quite a i would say reclusive if that's not an offensive term it's quite a a, a, a nation that's kept to itself to itself let's mm. put it that way the area wasn't well mapped for a very long time uh, apparently the first team that attempted to summit this mountain couldn't even find the mountain because their maps were wrong <laughs> oh really it's hard to get up. There's been four <laughs> expeditions that went up between 1985 and 1986, and none of them made it to the top. Oh. Um, but also, there haven't been many attempts. Bhutan only opened up for mountaineering in 1983. Okay. And then in 2003, mountaineering was banned again. So not only is it unclimbed, it is likely to remain unclimbed for a, as long as that ban is in place. Could you take a helicopter and fly up there? Uh, no, I think it's it's related to the spiritual beliefs of the local people and the mountains being a sacred place. So I doubt you'd be able to helicopter up and ski down even. I'm not, not sure it's specifically climbing that's the issue as so much as being in a place that is supposed to be held sacred. So I just wondered if anybody had actually been up there at all, like, or whether or not the climbing part I, was I don't think so. Part. I mean, it's always possible that someone dashed up there one time and didn't tell anyone, but mm. <laughs> I haven't seen anything that suggests anyone's been up there. That's quite incredible that we live in, in, in a time where most things have been conquered now, right? Well, this is the nature of Bhutan, actually. It's not crazy keen on visitors as a whole and certainly not opening up hugely. It, with the exception of passport holders of India, Bangladesh and the Maldives, if you visit Bhutan, you must take a pre-planned, prepared, guided package tour. You can't travel independently and just go see whatever you want. Oh. You have a minimum daily package, which is basically a minimum spend, which is designed to control tourism and also protect the environment, which they're very big on. So if you visit Bhutan, you have to spend somewhere between two and $300 a day. Okay. What happens if you don't get kicked out? Well, I think you have to have a guide and you have to stay in certain hotels. So I don't think you get away uh, with that. that. Includes, oh, you I'm thinking that? gift shops and stuff. They're not like... No, I don't think it's just for uh, snacks and drinks. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, it's got one international airport at Paro, which is an hour's drive from the capital city, Timpu. Mm-hmm. That is the fifth highest capital in the world, by the way, by altitude. This airport, Paro Airport, is served by just two airlines, Druk Air and Bhutan Airlines. Paro is one of, if not the most difficult airport to land in in the world. Why? Uh, there's no radar, which means a pilot has to fly in and check their speed and their altitude against local actual landmarks. Okay. And so you can only land during the day. There are no night landings in this airport. That makes you sense. Need to be able to see these things. Uh, you drive essentially along a valley and then you have to do a sharp turn. So you only get to see the runway mm. right at the last minute. And it's wow. a short runway as well. <laughs> of course it is. So because of all of this, um, th- again, I read a number of articles and the number, the exact number changed as these things will tend to. But somewhere in the region of 10 to 20 pilots in the world are qualified to land at Pero Airport. 10 to 20. Yeah. Woo. So you can't just go, well, oh, fancy going and I'm a pilot, I'm going to land there because you will probably die. <laughs> On the whole, I find those people that clap at the end when you land quite irritating. But I feel like this is the instance where I'd be quite happily clapping and cheering and I think applauding. this one merits it doesn't it, it does. <laughs> you managed to go through this valley sharp turn on the on the narrow uh, airport and they cancel yeah. flights a lot because the the conditions have to be right as well so it's a real challenge so again that's, that's Bhutan, not, not opening up to people very easily that's not one of those flights where you want to get that can anybody <laughs> take over yeah that's not an that's not an introductory flight <laughs> talk me in or this is going to be difficult <laughs> you see that mountain to the left no, it's too late. Now do you see the next map? No. Oh, dear. You're all in trouble. <laughs> we have now landed at Peru Airport. We know you have no choice of airline, but thank you for flying Bhutan Air. So on the subject of restricting outside influences, until 1999, Bhutan officially had no TV and no internet. But there was one fact that has put Bhutan on the global map, and this was the only thing I knew about them when I started the research. So you've heard of the GDP of a country as a measure of success of that country. Gross domestic product. Exactly. That's a financial measure. Bhutan has implemented gross national happiness. Gross national happiness is a, a measure that they use. This was created by the fourth king of Bhutan, Jigme Singye Wanchuk, and Bhutan's prime minister in- introduced this to the United Nations in 1998 as a paradigm for an alternative approach to developing and managing your country. I mean, this all sounds great, but how do you actually measure that? Well, how I'm do glad you measure you asked the happiness? That because every five years, survey mm. takers go out to about 8,000 randomly selected households. Yeah. They ask about 300 questions in okay. a process that takes about three hours, apparently. <laughs> when they first started, I guess it took all day and they managed to whittle it down to three hours. And they ask them questions such as and including how frequently do you pray? How much time and money do you devote to your community? How many hours do you sleep? How many hours do you work? How often do you quarrel with your family? This is my favorite. Do you trust your neighbors? <laughs> and the results are then intended to focus the government on things that make people happy rather than GDP or just measures of money. I love it, but I can't help but feel like I would fail that quiz. I don't think it's a pass-fail kind I feel of like thing. I would fail. Uh, I think the idea is to aim resources at things that make people happy rather than just make people richer. But uh, All those questions you just asked, I would fail. Well, yes, but maybe then that's they would come to the attention of the government. They would then lavish mm. upon you uh, things like, well, which they in fact do, free education, free healthcare. Some villages get free electricity. The constitution guarantees keeping 60% of the nation forested. Yep. So lots of parks and reservations connected by biological corridors, because these are the things that are seen to make people's quality of life improve. Uh, but one of the things that makes people in Bhutan happy is chili, chili peppers. Nice. I like chilies. I read it in numerous places that, that people in Bhutan don't perceive chili as a thing that's a spice or an addition to a meal. It's just a vegetable. Oh, really? <laughs> put wow. it in along with any other vegetable. Uh, and one of their significant and sort of unofficial national dishes is called emadachi. This is a chili cheese. It leaves yaks cheese, lots of chili, lots of vegetables. You put them in a pot, a bit of salt, a bit of butter, mm-hmm. boil it up and add the cheese and you get a cheesy chili delicious dish that sounds good i like cheese i like peppers well i think we can find out if it is good because we're gonna cook some emadachi now 
two of the main ingredients are yak's cheese and Bhutanese chili. I don't have any of those things, but a very, very kind Bhutanese person who is a British resident called Tenzin Wandi, he gave me a recipe using things that I could get in a local supermarket. So yeah. this is all now just stuff I got just around the corner. I didn't have to send off for yak's cheese or anything. Mm. Apparently it only takes 10 minutes. So if you've got 10 minutes to spare, let's cook. So here we have it, with great thanks to Tenzin Wangdi, his own recipe made with uh, locally sourced ingredients, I shall say, i.e. the supermarket. We've got onions, chilies just quartered. We've got some tomatoes, a bit of oil, salt, and a little bit of spring onion as well. So pretty healthy, vegetarian. It looks spicy, mate. <laughs> are, there, are there seeds in these chilies? There, I just went uh, the whole hog. I put everything in, mm. in large chunks. Okay. It is large chunks of the chili. All right, so, let's do it. Here we go. That's not too bad, you know. It's rather nice. Oh. Oh, hold on. Hmm. <laughs> oh, that's tasty. So the idea is the cheese and the tomato kind of balances the chilli. Yeah. And in Bhutan, did you know, an average family eats more than a kilogram of chilies a week. A kilogram? <laughs> As the evenings draw in and it's dark outside... A nice bowl of emadachi. It's going to warm you right through. Absolutely. It only took about 10 minutes. Very easy to make. Highly recommended. I'm not a major chef, and yet this has turned out okay, I think. Mm. That was delicious. That's Thanks. Nice, Thanks, Tenzin. Thanks, Tenzin. My mouth's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we may learn to regret this in about two minutes. Oh. Now, Peter, I would like to know some history. Tell me history! Well, as you know, we're looking at the period 400 to 500 CE. Now, if you go to the History of Bhutan Wikipedia page, the very first section starts with origins and early settlement 600 to 1600 CE. I also found out that the historical records that they did have were destroyed in a fire at Punaka in 1827 CE. Right. But I can solve this. So in, in his book, The History of Bhutan, by Karma Funcho, it says that to this day you can find in people's houses stone adzes. Do you know what an adze is? It's kind of like no, a sir. very broad pickaxe or like an axe that's been turned 90 degrees for tilling the soil with. Right. So they are. you can find in households treasured adzes, these stone adzes, mm. which they consider celestial weapons that were used in battles between the gods and the demigods. That's awesome. And these are called namchatare, or sky iron axes. But in fact, it's believed they are in fact prehistoric tools. So one was examined by the British Museum, who identified it as a late Stone Age artifact dating between 2000 and 1500 BCE. And they're still using them today? No, they keep them as a, okay. as a they like, oh, this is the kind of weapon of the gods kind of thing. And they keep it in a treasured place. And But they do keep them as a family heirlooms. Sure, that sounds amazing. So that tells us there are definitely people in our period. So we're not looking at a desolate em environment. Also, some geologists found changes in the pollen found in lake sediment in northwestern Bhutan, which suggested around 2,500 BCE. E, the vegetation changed from normal found in nature to more human-centric, suggesting oh. people were starting to grow stuff that would serve them uh, just by looking at the pollen in the uh, Archaeology area. is amazing, isn't it? It is. It's remarkable. So on top of that, somewhere between 100 and 600 CE, it's believed that there was a state or a country called Lomon, meaning southern darkness, or possibly Monul, meaning dark land. So actually, not only do we know that there were probably people there, we know for a fact there were people there, in certainly way before that, now we think there's probably a state there, so it's actually a bit more civilized than just some random cave people if you will mm. the people in the area were called the monpa and there are still some people called the monpa living in central bhutan today and they follow a religion called bonism so this is uh potentially the pre-buddhist religion of the the area but why was it called the Land of Darkness? Uh, this was because it was probably named by the historians of Tibet to the north. And at that time, these areas hadn't been touched by the enlightenment of Buddhism. So they weren't literally dark. It was just dark oh. because they hadn't been enlightened yet. I just thought there was no like lights. They had lights. They had okay. Butter lamps they have uh, frequently. Hmm. Uh, but of course that would change. In Tibet there was a king called Songsen Gampo who ruled from 627 to 49 uh, and he ordered the construction of two Buddhist temples in Bhutan, one in Bumtang in central Bhutan and in the Paro Valley in the west. And this event sort of marks the introduction of Buddhism to Bhutan and sort of is considered the start of Bhutanese history as we know it, which is super tied up in Buddhist history as well. Interestingly though, this guy Songsen Gampo, he was king of Tibet 
Tibet. He wasn't actually the king of Bhutan. So why is he building temples? The boring version is it's a projection of your influence. You build temples, much like we saw in Ethiopia, people building churches to say, mm -hmm. I'm here. The much more interesting version is that uh, the geomantic analysis of the country of Tibet made it clear that it was lying over the body of a gigantic demoness. And Wait, they, what? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say lava pit or something. No, a gigantic demoness. The hills were her breasts and the lake was the blood of her heart. So the whole country was basically situated upon a demon. So to deal with this, Songsten Gampo built 12 or 13 temples, 13 temples, to pin the demon down, basically, and immobilize and, and render powerless the demon. That's amazing. I love that. What if it's true? Well, let's say it is. Yeah. <laughs> so for a while, Bonism and Buddhism go side by side. And then the next sort of really significant event is another visitor to Bhutan, considered by many people to be the most important person in all of Bhutan's history. Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava, also known as Guru Rinpoche, is an Indian Buddhist, but not just a Buddhist, considered by many to be the second Buddha. Oh, Okay. A self-born emanation from a lotus on a lake, i.e. a virgin birth, didn't have a mother. And Padmasambhava travelled around India for a while and eventually he was invited to come to Bhutan when a king in the area fell gravely ill. So messages were sent out and Padmasambhava came to Bhutan to address the king's problem. So it turns out a spirit called Shalgan Karpo was behind the king's illness and he was out hiding in a cave nearby. So Padma Sambhava lured him out with a, quote, magnificent display, which I could not find any more detail on. What was this magnificent display? We can only imagine. Big dance. Big <laughs> costume. Possibly could have been a big dance, yeah. big dance number. <laughs> Bring out the dancing girls. Um, but anyway, whatever this display was, the spirit came out in the form of a lion and Padma Sambhava took the form of a Garuda, a big mythical bird, and sweeps up the lion and takes him away and returns the king to health. Why doesn't Hollywood make these stories? We need Bhutani wood to, to take care of this. <laughs> so Padmasambhava converts the king to Buddhism and the king wants him to stay around. He says, no, I've got to travel around. And he basically travels around, does a lot of, not just in Bhutan, but in the area in general, conducts a lot of miracles, dispenses a lot of wisdom and is generally good at being a Buddhist. Um, small interjection. Yes. How is one just traveling around the Himalayas in those days? So you would probably have a combination of walking or yaks to help you carry your stuff right because that's a lot of up and down isn't it yeah you'd certainly not travel huge distances in short times you'd have to mm. really plan your journey well then maps do you reckon Part of the early days of Bhutan, it was known as the land of four passes. So there were kind of four entrances to the country as a whole. So mm. I think there were, there were known passable journeys. So to some extent, given that a lot of it is impassable, you just follow the path in front of you and you get yeah, there eventually. So. Okay. So as a result of Padmasambhava being in Bhutan, Buddhism takes really good hold in Bhutan and there are temples and sacred spaces and cave walls with indentations marking his body all over Bhutan to this day. Now, nitpickers might suggest in historical terms there probably wasn't a man who turned into a bird. And this kind of highlights one of the interesting things about Bhutanese history, which it is mostly written by monks. And so it is a very, very religious bent, if you will. So when we learn about these things, you, the, the mythical and the actual are very much intertwined and you have to kind of take your myth with your fact as much as you have to. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. You know, I've been thinking and I reckon you might be a Buddha. Really? Well, how's that? Well, I've been reading, and they say to be a Buddha, you need to be able to meditate. Right. And to meditate, you have to empty your mind of every single thought. Okay. Well, your mind is completely empty pretty much all the time, isn't it? Yeah, 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 I suppose it is. <laughs> Maybe I am a Buddha. Oh, and you know what? I think you are a Buddha too. What? Why? Well, because you're fat and you're going bald. What the hell? Come on, that's so crazy. Come on, Pete, come on. We're Buddhas now. you got to let these worldly feelings go. Oh, that's outrageous. I'm not. I'm in good shape. I'm the Easy, Pete. you got to get karma. So more time passes. There's a long period of, I hesitate to say not much, because there are migrations of people. There's rivalries, families called dung, control various areas. And there's very much the same thing you see in any country. There's shifts of power, people trying to take power, people losing power. What's interesting is it is all tends to be internal. There's sometimes people come down from Tibet, but most of it is sort of internal power mongering between people and uh, communities in Bhutan. Uh, and various holy men come down as well. A lot of them come down from Tibet, popping down to see Bhutan. And one of these visitors is another important Buddhist figure. And he's important to not just the Bhutanese, but now to me personally, because I love this guy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
Drukpa Kunli. Drukpa Kunli. Known as the Divine Madman. I'm bought in. Okay, so this is a quote from the history of Bhutan. Drukpa Kunli is believed to have reached the great heights of spiritual realization to see through the vanity of life and the meaningless of worldly pursuits of happiness. Hold that thought because he also roamed the country carrying a bow and arrows and wielding a phallus. Specifically, his own palace, <laughs> with which he subjugated demons, which he called the Thunderbolt of Flaming Wisdom. <laughs> What's not to like about this guy, I ask him. So his actual phallus, as yes. in his penis. Yes. Or like a No, statue. the real thing, that's what he, he took a load. Well, let me tell you a little bit more. Another quote from the history of Bhutan. He's remembered for his jovial and lewd lifestyle mm. and for traveling from place to place, enjoying local liquor, singing licentious songs and seducing adult women of every age group. It's amazing, isn't it? Like when we look back to the past, we often think, oh, you're either a peasant or a king or you're a soldier. But the reality is you could have been a madman walking around with your penis out. That is, this guy is basically my inspiration. Uh, In fact, today you can find penis drawings on walls and murals all over Bhutan to celebrate this guy. Well, you can find that all over Croydon. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's true. (laughs) They're less uh, intentionally referential to Drukpa Kunli, I think, in Croydon. (laughs) But I, I just love this guy. And really, he's not massively historic in terms of the development of the country. But I had to share him with you because I he's was great. so pleased by discovering him. I am Demon Lord. You cannot beat me. Oh, you think so, do you? Oh, no. It's Drupa Kunli. Take that, demon. A new action figure from the Masters of Buddhism collection. Drupa Kunli and his mighty weapon. I've got you now! Oh no! With five fully poseable limbs combining to over 50 power poses, carrying case not included, Thunderbolt of Flaming Wisdom sold separately from What the Hell Toys. So now we're going to move on to the next big figure in Bhutanese history. And I think you could describe him as the father of Bhutan. This is someone called Nawung Namgyal. Okay. Also known as the Bearded Lama. Namgyal arrived in Bhutan, again from Tibet, in 1616, where he was fleeing from the dominance of a different sect of Buddhism that was led by the Dalai Lama, in fact. So when he arrived in Bhutan, he built a Jong. Jong is uh, it's interesting, it's kind of an encapsulation of the way I perceive things working in Bhutan, because a Jong is a monastery and a castle and a fort all in one. So it's a centre of administration, it's also a centre of religion, it's also a defensive structure, it's also a holy structure, and it's all just one thing. It's very much not a separation of church and state, put it that way. Uh, by tradition, interesting Jong fact, they're constructed without architectural plans. You use a high lama who establishes all the dimensions of the building by spiritual inspiration. You don't have plans. You have a lama going, build that, stop there, keep doing that. Oh, a bit more of that. Agile. <laughs> you could call it agile development. Uh, agile methodology of, <laughs> of building development. Spiritual inspiration, driving your development. Okay. So from this first Jong, Nawang Namyal gradually extends his influence he unites various families he builds a network of these jong forts until he was really the ruler of the first recognizable thing we could call the nation of bhutan uh, he takes the title zabdrung which means at whose feet one submits and he becomes the ruler of a land called a drukyul another word for bhutan so Tibet wasn't mad keen on this new country and the power this guy was developing. They launched a series of attacks. None of them were successful. Interestingly enough, Bhutan has never been successfully invaded. Ever. It has been beaten in, in fights, but it's never been invaded. That's an amazing stat. So Nawang Namiel basically united the country, kept the Tibetans at bay. And in 1651, unfortunately, Nawang Namiel died. Oh. Uh, this was a worrying time. Tibet was still looming large. and There wasn't a clear succession. So what did they do? They pretended he hadn't died. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they claimed he went into a spiritual retreat which was the kind of thing these kind of monkey leaders did and then they just carried on business as usual they took meals to his room <laughs> monks would have ceremonies with him he'd be behind a closed door doing his bit presumably an assistant's hands coming out to do whatever rituals were required weekend at bernie's <laughs> exactly it was a weekend at bernie's rule yeah but for 54 years oh my goodness 54 years they pretended he was having a spiritual retreat and in fact he was dead after 54 years no one was playing along with that anymore right well people began to suspect i think and uh it was a it was again used for easily used for political machinations because whoever controls the information and therefore controls the the body if you will controls the state uh, but eventually someone says oh actually he's dead sorry guys <laughs> <laughs> 
This takes us into another period of various rulers. And uh, what's interesting about this isn't necessarily the rulers themselves, but the mode of passing down. So rule could be passed to nephews or to sons, as you might expect. Yeah. But they also developed the ability of rule to pass due to reincarnation. Right. So if you found a child who you could convince everyone was the reincarnation of a previous ruler. Or who was the reincarnation of a previous ruler. Or indeed was the reincarnation of a previous ruler. Then lo and behold, this person could then become the new ruler. I mean, that's a great system. It just feels like it's slightly flawed and maybe taken advantage of. Smidge open to abuse, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So basically it led to lots of children being identified as, ah, that's <laughs> that's uh, King Boris because he didn't like eggs either. Right. He I must see really it in his eyes. <laughs> he had blue eyes too. Exactly. So yeah. there's a lot of that going on. So on the, on the one hand, it's weirdly slightly more democratic in that anybody could then become king by being identified as a reincarnation rather than just sons and nephews. But on the other hand, super open to abuse and it always happened to be the families of a powerful yeah. institution. It was very rarely, look, that peasant looks like him. Anyway, that continued. People inherited through various means the throne or the power. And then the next big upheaval we have is 1772 when uh, the Westerners arrive. Can I guess who? You can have a guess. It's not going to be the Portuguese. They weren't going inland, surely. You're smirking. Is it the Portuguese? <laughs> the first two recorded Westerners in the area were, in fact, Portuguese. No way. <laughs> But the first people to arrive in any kind of <laughs> significant manner were the British. Right. But the, genuinely, the first two were Portuguese missionaries. I'm going to start a new podcast called Portuguese Got Everywhere. <laughs> yeah, they certainly did, didn't they? Mm. So there was various toing and froing with the British, and it, it culminates in the Duar War, the Anglo-Bhutan War, 1864 to 1865, and Bhutan lost this war. They did have some successes, but they lost the war, and they signed a treaty called the Treaty of Sinchula, which is the start of a lasting peace with Britain, where they basically said, leave us alone, we'll have some open trade, we'll do whatever you want. They kind of become a little bit like a protectorate. Uh, but again, they weren't invaded and overcome. They signed, the, they lost, and they signed a treaty, but they retained their independence in that yeah. sense. okay. So fast forward again, internal strifes, civil war, all the shenanigans you get in any country, really. It's very easy to think of Bhutan as super spiritual and everyone yeah. super peaceful. Actually, politically, it's the same thing. People jockeying for position, mm. people trying to get power, people getting power, fights, murders, assassinations. It all happens as well. It's not everyone just sitting around going, oh, aren't we peaceful? People be people, Pete. Yeah, it's exactly so. So the next big thing is November 1907, where we see the end of the Zabdrung period. So Zabdrung was the name that the first guy took as the, the ruler of, of the country, kind of characterised by a power sharing between religious leaders and secular leaders. And Bhutan, I guess it, that they decided it isn't working out very well. So they adopt a king. So they actually get their first king in 1907. So Ugyeng Wanchuk was elected the first Druk Gyalpo, Dragon King. Chinese communists take over Tibet in 1951 and Bhutan closes its frontier with them, starts to modernise. Uh, it wasn't super smooth sailing. In 1964, a prime minister was assassinated. Political unrest happened, but the nation endured. And in 1971, they joined the United Nations. And then the first democratic elections began in 2007. Wow. There was some, there was some e uneasiness. Some people weren't really used to the idea. And, and weirdly, it was ordered by the king to become democratic, which feels a bit like, a, it's like telling me to make my own mind up. In 2007, in the Druk Gyalpo at that time abdicated and his son took the throne. And the current king, Jigme Kesar Namgyal Wangchok, became Druk Gyalpo at the age of 28 and he holds the role to this day. Ah, sounds like he's got a long road ahead of him. He does. He's been active in promoting further democracy since 2011. All of the levels of government have been democratically elected rather than appointed. And apparently he's big on environmental causes and is hopefully bringing Bhutan into the future. That sounds amazing. Do you want to go? I really want to go. And I'm willing to spend the minimum spend to do so <laughs> yeah i think i am too i'm not sure i'm willing to do that flight in though no you can there are road routes where you have you land into northern india and you can travel by road up there i want to travel by yak you can yak it in too sir yes. i'm going to <laughs> <laughs> so peter I've been hearing an awful lot about the background and history, but I have not been hearing an awful lot of music. You can hear me eat a bit of this. I can hear you eating a bit of that, yeah. <laughs> it's time to face the music, Ryan. Now, to face the music means to accept or deal with the consequences of something you've done, to take responsibilities. An American idiom, it may have originated in the 1830s, although I couldn't find any definitive where this came from. Some theories include facing your stage fright. So I guess the band starts up and you've got to go on. Oh, I see. Yeah, okay. Another theory is it's military. Apparently there was a certain drum beat or rhythm of some kind that would be played when a soldier was disgraced. So you'd have to face the 
drumming of your disgrace. I don't know. I'm not convinced by that, to be honest. Mm, yeah. And possibly some say it's a reference to a soldier going into battle to face the music of the guns of the other side. I mean, I guess in 1830, it was probably also the music on the battlefield as well. Some they had like... Bagpiper or... Yeah, bagpipes drummer. and drums and stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe. I guess your guess is as good as mine in this matter. Basically, we've got no idea. But uh, of course, as well as this uh, metaphorical music, we have actual music, which perhaps a desperate podcaster might cling to in an effort to create an interesting episode. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Buckle up, everyone. So the problem we have is, of course, we've already discussed the history of Bhutan really only starts as we understand it, as we know it, in 700 CE, long after our time period. So we're going to have to do some working out of things that might have been there or we can be fairly confident were there. Because we know there were people thousands of years ago. We know it was populated. We know there was something akin to a nation or at least reasonable-sized community. So I'm going to share with you in this episode some sounds that I am very confident that we would hear between 400 and 500 CE in the area we now know as Bhutan. I love it. So this is called Dungai Nango Nigma, the Orphan's Song, by Keng Sonam Dorji, who is the executive director of the Music of Bhutan Research Centre. This is a song from the album Music from the Mountains of Bhutan, released in 2014. And I listened to this loads while I was doing the research. It really got me in the mood and it's awesome. I love it. So Keng Sonam Dorji himself, I got in touch, and he kindly allowed us to use this music in the podcast. Oh, nice. And I highly recommend you have a listen. It's a great album, really good for studying too. This is fantastic. Atmospheric, like you say. Lovely, isn't it? So you could hear that guitar-y, banjo-y sound of the instrument. Yeah, what was the instrument? That is the sound of the drang-yen. The drang-yen. Drang-yen. This is kind of like a lute, as you would imagine, mm-hmm. from the sound. It's, it looks like it sounds in some ways. Okay. Um, <laughs> the drang-yen translates as hear the melody. Dra, melody, nyeng, listen. It's kind of a really signature sound of Bhutan. It's used in religious festivals and it accompanies folk dances and stories. It's got seven strings. It's got three double strings and one extra string, which is like an octave above to give you a kind of counter sound, I guess. And it's played with a plectrum that's a triangular bone or wood or horn plectrum. What's really beautiful about it is the head of a drangyen is carved with a chusin. It's a sea creature, like a sea serpenty demon face. And that is there to ward off the evil spirits that might be drawn to the beautiful music you're making. Cool. Now, this is a popular instrument with the gods. Lamo Yang Chenma, the Bhutanese goddess of music, carries one of these. But also the guardian deity of the East, Shachog Gyalpo, often uses one of these to communicate because if he used his voice, it was so powerful and godly, it would emit destruction everywhere. So rather than use his voice, he uses the Drangyen. But there's a problem, Ryan. It's believed the Drangyen originated in Bhutan around the same time as Guru Rinpoche was, was doing his thing. So we're talking 700 to 800 CE. Can't be sure we'd have faced this in our period. So I'm going to give you a different instrument, a better candidate, and this is a flute-like instrument. So I'm more confident on this for a couple of reasons. In 1984, six complete bone flutes, as well as fragments of about 30 more, were excavated from a Neolithic tomb in central China, which date back to 6000 BCE. Whoa! So it's relatively near our area and way older. So clearly these are the oldest known musical instruments from China and they're the oldest playable multi-note instruments ever found anywhere. So we know that whistles and flutes were totally plausible in the area. We've had the technology and the knowledge for thousands of years before even our period. So I'm super confident that if you wanted to face the music in Bhutan 400 to 500 CE, you'd hear something like this. (laughs) 
an acquired taste. Yeah, it's not as good as the other one, is it? Let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, it is 8,000 years older. So this is the Dong Lim. This is a popular bamboo flute, sometimes known as the cow herder's flute in some areas. Hmm. They're about 20 inches long with six finger holes and a mouth hole. And you blow in it and you open and close the holes, as you might expect. Why'd they bury 30-odd flutes? Why'd you need 30? Oh, I've got loads of them. I just stacked up all over the place. Okay. Just like <laughs> backup ones. Well, yeah, you've got your everyday flute, your special occasions <clears throat> flute, your Sunday flute. I think it's because he like rocked out and would smash them at the end of the set. <laughs> <laughs> smash it over his knee. I like it. The Who style. <laughs> the end of every gig. Yeah. Oh, he smashed another one. <laughs> so they'd give him some more. His flute whistler was like, I like this guy. <laughs> So that was the Dong Lim, and that is, I'm very confident, a sound you would hear in the period we are looking at. It's definitely evocative of a time long, long ago. It is. It's almost timeless, that sound, mm. isn't it? But of course, man isn't the only source of music in the world. There's the music of the sounds of nature. Famous for their song are, what, what creature would you think of when you think of song? Bees. Not a bee. The national bee <laughs> of Bhutan. <laughs> <laughs> I also think of birds. Birds, exactly. So let's have a listen to the melodic noise of the national bird of Bhutan. Isn't it beautiful? Beautiful, isn't it? It's squawky, isn't it? It was very squawky because that is the sound of the raven. Oh, okay. Also known as the jarok in Bhutanese. A corvid. It may exactly a corvid. Very smart animal. It may not be musical to you, but to ravens, that is blowing Stravinsky, mate. I thought birds when they were singing was like swear words. It was all like angry. Get out of here. This is mine. It does sound a bit like that, doesn't it? <laughs> So why the raven is the national bird of Bhutan um, because it's the form chosen by one of the major deities that protects Bhutan, uh, someone called Makala. Uh, or I've also found Jarog Dongchen, and I'm not sure if that's another word for the same god or there's two deities who like to look like ravens. Uh, so they might be the same one, they might be different, but Mahakala and Jarog Dongchen, deities who look after Bhutan, basically. So do you remember Zabdrung Nguyen Namgyel? Yep. Let me say it in a different way. Do you remember the bearded llama? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the guy who started Bhutan, effectively. Mm -hmm. um, while he was still in Tibet, it was said he dreamt of a raven taking flight and heading south towards Bhutan. And he recognised that as a manifestation of Mahakala, and that was one of the reasons he travelled to Bhutan and became the king he did in the end. Ravens are impressive birds. They're big, aren't they? They're big and impressive, and they're smart. I, mm. I do love a raven, I must admit, but they are not necessarily that musical. No, they are definitely not. But you could, you could, you could see how in the past people would look at a raven with some element of there being a mystery to it. Yeah, you would respect it, and also they tend to follow battlefields around, don't they? As well, so they have that kind of death association oh, in Western culture. So the Mahakala who protects Bhutan, this manifests today in the crown. The king wears a crown called the Raven Crown. Mm. Like a lot of Bhutanese things, you think of a crown, doesn't look like that. <laughs> what does it look like? So it, it's kind of, it's a, it's embroidered. It's a kind of cloth hat. <laughs> embroidered looks crown. looks like a pillow. It looks kind of like a pillow. It looks super comfortable. I'm totally for it. <laughs> and it's a, basically a silken satin round hat. Uh -huh. uh, it's got images of skulls on the front and sides also associated with Mahakala but there's this like pillow like round hat and then in the middle there's a bird popping up out of the middle of the hat there's this raven's head from the kind of shoulders I'm not sure they have shoulders but from the shoulders up this little raven head poking out of the top of the, of the crown it looks cool and like I say you know you think of a crown and you go oh crown it's round it's metal it's got spikes nope they've gone nope we don't want any of that well, we want it's a nice cuddly cloth crown uh, with a little bird sticking out of the yeah. top it looks awesome I love it do, do, do you look at it and go cool <laughs> no you would wear it to go raving <laughs> Final point is, I do say it looks like a cushion. It was actually originally modelled on a battle helmet, so its origins were not as cuddly as it is today, but it looks looks great. I love it. So that is the sound of the raven. More music. Uh, obviously, ravens have been around for centuries and centuries. So oh, there was yeah. definitely a raven there then. Absolutely. Now, the next sound, Ryan, is another sound of nature and another... It's, it's it possibly, if anything, not quite as melodic as the raven. <laughs> <laughs> when you say sound of nature, are you equating that to music? Yes, it's the <laughs> music of the world. <laughs> I see. Let's have some music of the mountains. I feel like maybe the Desolator stumped you this week. I think it was... Well, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. 
you guess what that is? A pig? Woolly pig. Woolly pig. Not far off. That, sir, is the sound of the yak. <laughs> and also clown car. An alarm that yak at that. <laughs> so that, sir, is the sound of the yak. Have some yak facts. <laughs> Originally, the yak was designated Bos Gruniens, meaning grunting ox, right. by Linnaeus in 1766. Because it doesn't, as you heard, moo like a cow. It grunts like a pig, doesn't it? It does grunt like a pig. Yeah, it's a fascinating noise. If you said to me, what's the sound of a yak? Mm. You'd have gone for a moo. So yaks can grow to be seven feet tall. Wow, really? So taller than you. Mm. They can weigh up to 1,500 pounds, 650 kilos, which is about 15 toilets or one and a half grand pianos. They're big. That is a big creature. Big, big, bushy creature. And do they live on the plains? Uh, They're found in the... the, I think they're slightly higher up, though, so I don't think they're fully alpine because they need to eat fresh grass. Ah. So one of the problems of yak travel, which yaks are used for transport... Mm is they don't eat uh, grain very well, so they want they need fresh pasture. Mm. So what you find actually is in Bhutan, they also practice something we've come across before called transhumance, which is the travelling of your yaks up and down the mountain oh, for yeah. the summer and winter seasons. But yes, the yaks eat grass, fresh grass basically, so they can't be so high. You don't have grass available, but they're pretty woolly and they can, they're pretty robust, so they're relatively high. Yeah, you don't want angry yaks or hung, hungry yaks. Absolutely not. So yaks are incredibly important. They're found all over the Himalayas. They're used for transport, food, agriculture, as you could imagine. They provide wool for clothes, obviously, blankets, but they even make tents out of the wool. They're good for milk, obviously. You can get meat of the, out of them as well. But also above the tree line where wood is hard to find, yak dung is a significant source of fuel for fires. Oh, is it not wet? I think you let it dry out oh, <laughs> and just okay. go straight, straight, light it as soon as it comes out. I think you have to prepare it a little, a little bit first. Uh, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> so to imagine how life with your yak may have looked 400, 500 CE, we can look at the way of life of the Brokpa people. These are yak herders who live in the remote far eastern corner of Bhutan. They've only been there since the 1300s, but the way they live is, I think, highly likely to be fairly typical of the time. <laughs> so in winter, they hunker down in their villages. Uh, Merak and Sakteng are the two villages where these guys live. There's not many of them. There's a, it's a small community. It's just super remote. There's two or three day trek from the capital to get there. Yeah. Never mind, it's not a massive country either. They, I'm not clear on whether they finished the road or not, but certainly fairly recently there was no road even to the village. Uh, but then in the summer, they become semi-nomadic. They walk around looking for fresh pasture for the yaks to eat. Mm. Uh, May and June, they harvest the yak hair. But they only harvest hair from females and castrated males because the breeding bulls, they let them keep their hair so it's all intimidating and the I guess the girls fancy him. Mm. You get to keep your hair. The castrated one that's poor old yak i mean you've been castrated and now you've got to have a haircut it's a it's a rough life (laughs) and so we know that yaks have been around for ages we know that people have been in the area for ages it's pretty obvious that 400 to 500 c you would have had yak herding going on yeah get out your hut and climb that hill or you can't pay that pending bill if you don't trek that mountain pass, you ain't gonna get no dinner grass. Yakety yak, don't run back. You've got to give them what they want. So don't complain and don't you front. And when you think that you are done, they'll even use you for your dung. Yakety yak, don't run back. Now go and mate with all the girls. If you want to keep your lovely curls And if you're a yak who just won't rut They're gonna cut off both your nuts Yakety-yak, yakety-yak Yakety-yak, yakety-yak I've got one more nature sound for you, Ryan, before we go back to people. And this is the sound of the talking. The talking. The talking. You ever heard of talking? <laughs> when we were talking right now. Have you? <laughs> Are you talking to me? Have you ever heard of a talking? No. Okay, well, this is the national animal of Bhutan, and it sounds a little something like this.
Sounds like a bounce okay. of indigestion. <laughs> it's, it's like my tummy when I'm hungry. <laughs> That's the tokin, the national animal of Bhutan. Uh, this tokin comes in four flavors. The Mishmi tokin, the golden tokin, the Tibetan tokin, and the Bhutan tokin. Mm. You can guess which one they like particularly. Uh, it kind of looks like uh, just an animal mashup. It looks like it's been assembled from bits of spare animal. It's got horns, kind of like a wildebeest, sort of flared back. Got a face, kind of like a moose, that sort of swollen nose look of a moose. Got a body that's like a short bison that's gone to the gym a lot and got super jacked. Uh, it's, which is why it's known as also the goat antelope or the gnu goat. So it's kind of a goat, it, but it, it's just a crazy mashup looking thing. I love it. Uh, they come about five feet tall at the shoulder, so the height of a short person, you might say. So that was more the sound you'd expect out of a yak, that depth of noise, wasn't it? Mm. But they're mountain creatures. These guys live over 3,700 metres up, so you're not going to run into one on your walk because they're up in the alpine areas. They live in little herds of 10 to 50 in winter, and then in the summer they gather in bigger herds, up to 100. Uh, and legend has it that the golden fleece that you've heard of from Jason and the Argonauts, the story, mm-hmm. might have been someone seeing the coat of the golden tacking. No way, really. Okay, that could be the origin. That's one of the theories, yeah. That makes sense. So in Bhutan, though, the legend is much more interesting. Okay. Did you remember Drukpa Kunli? See the man with the penis? He was the man with the penis, the divine madman. Yeah. So one day the people of Bhutan said, Drukpa Kunli, can you do a miracle for us? He was like, (laughs) yeah, no problem. Uh, And he says, but first I want lunch. And specifically for lunch, I would like a whole cow and a whole goat. He devours both of these animals. And after, as an after-dinner trick, he takes the head of the goat, fixes it to the skeleton of the cow, and snap, creates a live animal, and thereby invents the tokin. Or, as it's known to the Bhutanese, Domgemtse. It's just crazy looking. I love it. It's, I'm a big fan of the tokin. I'd never heard of it before this. It's like the, uh, the first Jurassic Park story. It's exactly like that. Man creating creatures. But it works out a lot better, because man created an awesome creature, and everyone lives happily ever after. <laughs> Mm. I guess the token wasn't eating people. I probably wouldn't want to get in the way of them because they are, they look super muscly. They're really, really got They're some bulges. Popping up and down mountains every day. That will keep we you, sit keep on your sofas cardio all day. up. <laughs> <laughs> every day is leg day when you're a token. Yeah. <laughs> My name's Joaquin, and in today's Talking Tacking, we're tackling employee slacking and when to start sacking. Professor Rackin, welcome back in. There's lots to pack in and time is lacking, so let's get yakking on talking tacking. Cracking! Let's start attacking the topic of slacking. To send them packing, you need evidence stacking, so always be tracking the ways they've been lacking. The wise cracking, too much snacking. So get the whip cracking? No, 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 don't be nagging. Just flagging where they're lagging or their heels are dragging. Fascinating. Well, we need to break now, so get a snack in as we come back in with part two of Talking Tacking, where we'll be talking about fracking. So, music? So, I've got one more sound for you. <laughs> the music <laughs> of the talking. Of the <laughs> this I isn't thought, music either. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I thought when you mentioned its horns, I was like, the horn section? Something? No. no, no. no. <laughs> so, I've got one more noise for you. Uh, all right. It's the music. <laughs> 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 the music of... Go on. Yeah, of what? Music of Bhutan's national sport. (laughs) (laughs) You'd like to play the archery sound. (laughs) (laughs) That, did you hear that? That little thunk? That was the music of Bhutan's national sport. Stop laughing. This is a serious business. <laughs> Come on. You do understand the rules of this show, right? I understand the rules of the show, and I have delivered uh, the best fit that I could with the information available, which was thin. <laughs> I can't wait for the verdict. Oh, man, I'm going to say to man, I realise that. But I have brought fascinating facts to the table, and I stand by them. That was the sound of an arrow being released and hitting a wooden target. Because arch... <laughs> Stop now. <laughs> All right. Archery is a massive sport in Bhutan. It's national sport, um, but obviously it's also a tool for hunting and warfare, easily as far back as 400 to 500 CE. Tick. Tick. 
we know this because the oldest evidence of arrow's heads are in South Africa from 60,000 years ago. Bows have been found in one piece from 9,000 BCE in Denmark. Mm-hmm. And even in China, in China's terracotta army, a crossbow has been found dated about 2,200 years ago. So I'm going to give it to you. Definitely there definitely, in our period. There were definitely bows and arrows there. That sure. is the noise it's going to make because it's a very traditional approach to the sport. It's a string instrument. Hey, it definitely is. <laughs> uh, side note, in the 15th century, Drukpa Kunli, he comes back again. He's generally depicted, as well as holding <clears throat> the thunderbolt, yeah. he, <laughs> <laughs> he holds a bow and arrow. And the story says that when before he visited Bhutan, he launched an arrow from where he was in Tibet and prayed that his descendants would flourish wherever it landed. And it flew over the Himalayas and it hit a house in Bhutan. Huh. So he followed it. And there he found the owner and seduced his wife. Drupakunli <laughs> 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 winning all day long. Yeah. I've got you now, farmer's wife. Drupakunli, one arrow won't win me over, but I've got a whole quiver. Ooh, a new action figure from the Masters of Buddhism collection. Farmer's wife. Oh, Drupa, who's quivering now? Complete with Drupa Kunli's bow and farmhouse carrying case. Outraged farmer sold separately. From What the Hell Toys. So that, Ryan, is the last of the sounds I have for you today. All of them from Bhutan, some of them from 400 to 500 C. <laughs> Some more musical than others, I'll accept that. But I did learn from Karma Funcho's book, The History of Bhutan. Good book if you uh, are in the mean, in the market for a Bhutanese history book. I am. I think it might be the only one, in fact. But To the mind of a Buddhist, says, says Karma Funcho, both time and space are viewed as flexible, stretchable, collapsible and interpenetrable. So I ask you, Ryan, is there even such a thing as 400 to 500 CE? <laughs> Open your mind, my friend, and let enlightenment in. Right. Yeah. So, (laughs) I feel like you've got something to say. (laughs) So, I very much enjoyed this episode, Pete. (laughs) Is there a butt coming? There's a butt coming. No, there's no butt. I very much enjoyed it. I got food. I had interesting facts. And I very much am looking forward to the verdict next week. (laughs) I grant you that I'm probably in trouble with this episode regarding hitting the brief <laughs> however there was sound which mm, some might consider music yeah um but i was i got the country i got the time period I you think. did that's very true and you know what what is life if it's not music everything in life is music it's can i use this sim- next week <laughs> it's the symphony of life make notes it's the symphony of life <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm in trouble, aren't I? Yeah, you really are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Peter, you've had your chance. It's now my shot at stardom. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to roll out the doors later, and uh, I'm going to give you the button to press. So if you could switch it on for me. Okay, here we go. And mm-hmm. your place is... Italy. Italy. Nice. I love Italy. All right. That's a promising country. Now, your time period is... It's wild card. Ooh, we haven't had one of those in ages. It has been a while now, just to refresh your memory. The rules of wild card are we, having generated the final topic, mm-hmm. you have one minute to choose your own time period. Yeah, okay. And I can pick any time, can't I? Any time you like. All right. Sounds good. So let's check your topic and come back to your time. Okay. Your topic is... Fiction. 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 Oh, this is good. Italy and fiction. Right. Can I recommend the Jurassic period? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, your wild card choosing time starts now. Right, okay. Um, Time periods. Why has my mind gone blank? Um, Times are ticking. Oh, do I I'm want to go and oppress you by talking over you or putting you off a door. I don't want you to choose a bad time. That would be awful. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to shut up. I'm trying to think of any Italian fiction. <laughs> uh, oh, dear, the time's running out too. The sand's in the hourglass. Okay. Through. All right, I think I got it. Okay. And your time period is? The Renaissance. Oh, good choice. I don't know when that is. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly bad choice. But it's the Renaissance. That feels like a very good idea. Right? I think you did That's well Italian, there. right? It definitely is. Because I got a bit worried because Renaissance is a French word. 
I think they had the Ninja Turtles during the Renaissance. Well, then I'll be totally fine. As long as they wrote stuff and didn't just do sculptures and paintings, I'll be fine. Well, yeah, that's. I'm sure there's someone else. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. So next episode, I'm going to be doing fiction in Italy during the Renaissance. All right. I look forward to it. I think you're going to do well there. I'm excited. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Do do the voice. Okay, well, look, that is the show for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that Pete has talked about on this show, or just to say... Just to back me up about how musical all of those segments were, that would be helpful. I think I need a writing campaign at the very least. You can reach out to us <laughs> through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at Ryan at hhepodcast.com. And remember to use that subject line, everything is music. Uh, obviously, we'd love to hear from you, uh, particularly me. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. That's right. And if you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you can find us at hhepodcast. And if you subscribe to those, you'll have access to the pictures and extra content that we put out to let people know what goes on behind the scenes. That's right. And we're going to be back again very soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thank you to Mr. Peter Goddard. Thanks to you, Ryan. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History Happened everywhere. Hey Pete. Oh, hey Ryan. What are you up to? I'm just I'm just doing some last minute googling. There's got to be something musical in Bhutan from 400 to 500. But mate, we're we're at the end of the show. This is the last sketch. You, you, you haven't got time. Look, look. Oh my god, look, I found something. Really? Yeah, yeah, look. Oh yeah, look. Oh, they called it the musical age. Wandering minstrels played across the land, extensively documenting their travels. Oh, look at this section. Look, facing the consequences of their transgressions. Oh, that's perfect. I found it. I've done it. I can pull this back and get a good grade on the verdict. Yeah, but mate, we've only got 20 seconds left. I can do it. All right, well, off you go. Here we go. Wandering minstrels grew on the famous land first, with their swing instruments and their tubers and their pipes and muffers and instruments that travel through the village stories. The children flock to the fire and listen to the stories and the tales of the ancestors of the village. Often they'll be paid in food, sometimes in grain, sometimes in yet milk. The land will be lived and people gather around the fire and listen to the tales of the ancestors. When they say, I don't know what Nailed it.